You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Let's get started. We're talking about Matthew chapter 9. We preached last week a message that I have in your worship guide filled in the notes up until the, the part two. But I want to do a simple review. And here's what I want to do. I want to take the highlights of the message in about 10 minutes and then transition into the new message. In order to do that, I refreshed, if you will, the, the missions statements that I put in last week and I put in some new ones from missionaries that, uh, that, that have done, by God's grace, mighty works as they have saw the fields. They, they, they were an answer to the prayer of laborers in the harvest. Let, let's look at this Nate Saint quote. Nate Saint was a missionary to Ecuador. He served in the U.S. Army. God called him into missions. He was a pilot, and so he used his a- a- aviation skills to, to go to these remote islands and bring the gospel In 1948, he was married. He had three children. In 1956, eight years later, he was martyred as he flew his plane into an island in Ecuador, and the Aqua Indians met him there. And after some decent talks, they they just randomly took four missionaries' lives, and Nate Saint was martyred on the mission field. But the incredible part of the story is that was the beginning of revival on that island. Six of the Indians who killed Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and others, six of them were converted by the wives of the dead missionaries. It's powerful. Listen to this quote from Nate Saint. And people who do not know the Lord ask why in the world we waste our lives as missionaries. They forget that they too are expending their lives. And when the bubble is burst, they will have nothing of eternal significance to show for the years they have wasted. James Fraser, he was a missionary to China from 1908 to 1938. 30 years missionary to China. And James Fraser said this, you know, I used to think that prayer should have the first place And teaching, the second. I now feel it would be truer to give prayer the first, the second, and the third place. And teaching the fourth. C.T. Studd. This guy was a beast. Missionary to Africa. Missionary to India. Missionary to China. He was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. His father was saved at a D.L. Moody revival, campus, a crusade. And those of you that have a little bit of knowledge about, you know, uh, church history and and revivals in in our day and time, D.L. Moody is one of those names that is somewhat of a household name. Just an incredible, kind of a Billy Graham of that day. C.T. dedicated his life to the mission field under the preaching of Hudson Taylor, who we quoted last week and will quote to conclude the introduction of this sermon. C.T. Studd said this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice could be too great for me to make for him. And then Hudson Taylor, God's work 
done in God's way will never lack God's supply. As we allow these quotes, not nearly as powerful as Scripture, so I'm saving the best for last, but as we allow these missionary quotes to impact our hearts, to tenderize our hearts for the message, to somewhat lay a convicting ground. I mean, because this is convicting. It's convicting for me. Listen, this ends the mission's revival today. It's it's October. We're going into November. I'll begin preaching some Thanksgiving messages, and and, and we'll we'll, we'll, we'll be walking away from some of these type of sermons for a little while. But I'm going to tell you, it's somewhat of a relief because there is so much conviction packed in Matthew 9. As we hear the intensity of Jesus and the words that he says, as he stands and looks upon the crowds and is moved with compassion, pray tell me, how do you preach about compassion without passion? You can't even say the word without it. It's not a time for a lecture this morning. This is not a time to, to, to kind of tickle our, our feet and, 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 and our ears and, and just a lot of fluff and a lot of fun. This is an intense passage of Scripture that requires prayer and focus. We talked about Matthew, how he, he split the story of God's history of salvation into four missional time periods. And what we said was we are in the third missional time period. You and I, we're living in that time period. That's, it's pretty neat. That time period is the commissioning of disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. We, we heard that in, in Matthew chapter number 28 as he said to his disciples, go and preach the gospel to all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We focused on that passage last week to say that this is where you and I are at. Not much has changed in 2,000 years when it comes to the mission of God and the story of salvation. And so here we are today. And in the passage we're about to read, Jesus' compassion on the multitudes, he saw them separated from God. He saw them in the condition they were in, and it, it, it presented itself as an opportunity for him to urgently rescue them, understanding there was not much time. And it's an urgency in this passage. And so I want you to see something with me as we, as we transition into the second part of the message in a moment. I want you to see the Christian's part in this is not simply to watch Jesus from the audience. Or let's put it into today. It's not simply to watch the pastor from the audience. We talked last week about we sit, we stand, we kind of go through the motions. It's just, you know, it's Sunday, right? And we know how Sundays work. And they have a lot of repetition to them. And they have the cup of coffee. And they have the little breakfast. And they have the 9 o'clock or the 1045. And we make that decision oftentimes as to what's convenient for our schedule that day. And I'm okay with that. I get it. And then we walk out those doors until next Sunday. And we sat and we stood and we participated for the hour and 15 minutes we were together. But it's much more than that. Jesus is not calling you and I to watch from the audience. He commands the disciples to pray, and then he says, I want you to ask the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. They're few. There's not enough. But there's so many people. There's so few people to reach them. So we've got to pray to the Lord of the harvest. 
But Jesus, in this passage, not only commands the disciples to pray for God to raise up more harvesters, but then, very clearly, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 and verse 5, he sends them out. Look here as he transitions into the very next chapter, and he says to these same disciples, hey, come on, guys, come around me. And they're like, well, wait, we're going to go pray. And he said, well, in verse 5, I'm going to send you out. You are the answer to your own prayer. You're the answer. As we pray for more laborers, God is saying to us, hey, you're the laborer. And here's what I want you to do. And guess what? It's only like five blocks away or it's across the street. Or guess what? It's going to be when you go to work tomorrow. It's going to be the guy you work with. That's your mission field. It's going to be the kid that always comes over to your yard to play in the backyard. But that's your mission field. You're the laborer. While you're praying for somebody else to go, God says, it's you. It's me. It's us. And there is an urgency here. There's an urgency in this text. And so we come to this place 2,000 years later in church history, and it's the same urgency. We are still to pray for God to send laborers and then at the same time be ready to be sent ourselves. And then we said this, that Isaiah saw the Lord in Isaiah 6.1. And when he saw the Lord high and lifted up in all of his glory, in verse number 6 it says that he, he said, here am I, Lord, send me. I, 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 what I've seen is, is, is enough. I know I need to do something about what I've been given, about the, the gift I've been given, about, as we, as we sang just a moment ago, when we see Jesus on that cross, we can't help but to want others to know of his love. And so Jesus talked about what he saw. We mentioned there are five senses that all of us have every moment that we're awake, but the one that affects us the most is our sight. What we see. And then we took just a moment to look at some pictures, and I pressed the reset button on the pictures, just like I pressed the reset button on the mission quotes. And the first picture I have for you was taken in 1980. Let me tell you the story behind the picture. So in 1980, Mike Wells took this picture. The picture was given this this title because it's a missionary. The, The hand is a missionary's hand, and the small, malnourished hand is a child. So this picture's title was given, The Missionary and the Child's Hand. In 1980, it, was, it received all the awards for the greatest photo taken that year. Michael Wells was invited to a, a, a wonderful celebration of his glorious picture that he somehow was lucky enough to take. And they called him on the platform and they, they, they said, listen, we're going to celebrate you. Here is, here is your awards. Here is your cast prize. And he said, why? Why are we doing this? Don't you see? This is not about me. This is not about some picture that I should be glorified because I, was, I got to take it. This is about starving children that need food. Cannot we see the need? Does that picture move you? The next picture should move families, fathers and sons, right? I mean, look at this picture of a dad in 1949 with his kid. And they're walking away from their house and he's got a ball in his hand. But then 60 years later, they took the same picture. Father and son. 
And as I saw this picture, I was so moved. I began to think about my life and how I have a a 31-year-old boy who God allowed me to be his father, and then a 29-year-old boy, and a a 23-year-old boy, and a a 21-year-old girl, and a 16-year-old girl. And I thought about the awesome responsibility I have to be a dad. And when I saw that picture, I couldn't help but to say, I've got to share it with my church family. I want them to see the the, the glorious days of our lives will be when we're old and we're holding the hands of a child walking down a street and just recognizing the fact that we're still that example. We're still that rock. As we follow Christ and they follow behind. What a picture. What a moving picture for every dad in this room. And then I saw this picture as I thought about Veterans Day coming up here in just a week and a half. And you know, sometimes I think we can overlook Veterans Day and, and, and how blessed we are to live in a country that has such a great military that defends our freedoms. And aren't you grateful today for those men and women around our world today who are serving away from their families? Amen. And may we honor them in such a way that recognizes their sacrifice. And here is a picture that somebody caught. Have you ever been to an airport where you were on the flight with military, and when you get off, you see the family holding poster boards, and when they <clears throat> come up those escalators or, and they see their family, it's like you begin to cry. You were just taking a flight after a couple days, to, you know, on a business trip, and you're coming back to see your family, and your wife's like, you know, there he is again. You might get a kiss of the cheek, you know, maybe the lips, you know, or save that for later, whatever. <clears throat> but not with this crowd. And here is a woman named Terry Garala who is reunited with her daughter after serving in Iraq for seven months. And when you stare at that face, I'm telling you, and I did. There's a lot of pictures I could have chose from, but I thought this one is one that moved me. And then there's this one. A picture that And all of them have the names of the person who took the picture, but I didn't write this one down. But here's the picture of a son and his alcoholic father. Come on, Dad. Come on, Dad. Come home. Come home. There's men like that all over this city. There's men like that all over this city last night at midnight at a bar while their kids were in bed. Just open your eyes. It's right here in our city. Some of them are on the front page of the Sentinel Record every week as they're arrested and their mugshots are placed on us. My wife's in court with many of these. It's so sad. She'll come home sometime and say, Honey, it's hard for me to serve in the court under the judge. Just the things you have to see, it's so moving. It's so, honey, it's got to do something. You see, what Jesus saw with his eyes stirred him, not to be complacent about what he saw, but to be moved to do something about it. And the average believer, you take a town like Hot Springs that has 130 some odd churches, 225 in Garland County, and should there be any excuse as to why that many churches and that many Christians should not be impacting a city more than we are? Could it be that we have gotten confined to the walls of our church and our, our, our little communities and have we gotten comfortable in those moments and forgotten there are people outside the walls of our bubbles that need Jesus, that need us to see them like Jesus saw them? We said he saw their neglect. And that's where the message came from. 
In Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse number 36, he said he saw the crowds. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. And so from that text, I took my title, Harvesting the Harassed and the Helpless. You know, I wonder if years ago there may have been something that was an advantage we had at Gospel Light. Yet I still think we have the advantage today. We're just not taking advantage of it. Years ago, those of you that were in our church, maybe, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, remember something we had called the bus ministry. And we had about 15 bus routes that would leave our campus with laborers and sometimes 5 to 10 to 15 laborers per bus route. And they would go into the, we called it the highways and the hedges because that's what the Bible calls them. You know, these are the places that nobody goes. These are the, the streets and the, of the city, the, oftentimes the inner city. Well, there's poverty. I mean, I, I live in the inner city, and I see some of that. And, and where there's heartache, and where there's murder, and where there's... Uh, and so we would take these buses and go into these areas, and sometimes, and this may shock some of you that have not been here in, since those days, there were days we had over 1,000 children that would come to campus. Most of the time, we had 300 to 500 kids. But what was more moving than that was going to their homes. Because on Saturdays, you would go to their homes, and you'd visit, and you'd get to know them, and you'd become their friends, and you'd get to know their parents, and you'd invite them to church, and they would get on the bus, and they would come. And you would see as they opened the doors, just the heartache, the suffering, the pain, the, 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 the lack of everything you can imagine. And without going into any detail, I think you would understand it was so moving. And I think there was an advantage our church had in those days as, as we saw with our eyes Every weekend, we used to go to nursing homes. We had nine nursing homes. We went to every single Sunday and Saturday. We had laborers to do it. We had people that were willing to go, and they would give an hour of their time every weekend to go to these nursing homes. And, and they were tough. I mean, look, the one we go to now, quite frankly, is very nice. It's a retirement home. It's great, and we love it, and I love it. But there are some in this town that are tough to go to. Not everybody can do it because of the smells. Not everybody can but we had enough that could. And we'd go into these rooms and we'd visit people who were just left there by their family. Left there. Nobody. A widow. Uh, an aged man. Somewhat senile at times. But they were there. And we'd go into their rooms. We'd bring them flowers. And we'd bring them Bibles. And we'd bring them uh, scriptures. And we'd read devotions. And we'd pray with them. And I mean, my kids grew up knowing, you know, this is just what we did. And we went into the fields and we saw, we saw the harvest. Often. And so when we'd come to church, we were, we were I think there was a, a move, if you will, of, of God. It was because we were seeing things with our eyes. I'm afraid what's happened in, in not just our church, but in Christianity as a whole, is we've become so inclusive. We, we've sort of just kind of taken, COVID didn't help any, and there's other things that I'm sure contributed to that, but we're still trying to rebound and get back to what the main thing is. And that is not sitting in a service for an hour and 15 minutes a week. It's going into the fields that are ripe or ready to harvest. And we said that the temptation to avoid and neglect is that we must not yield to the temptation that when we see people who are harassed and who are helpless and who are shepherdless, that we say they've gone too far. There's just nothing we can do for them. Nothing we can do. Jack's here today. Jack... Get baptized next week. 
And I even said, when I took Jack's testimony, I said, Jack, you don't have to give us a lot. He said, preacher, I'm just going to tell you my story. You can tell him whatever you want to tell him. You mind if I just share a bit of that this morning? And not wait till next week? You don't care? Jack, it would have been very easy, I think, at some point for somebody to look at you and say he's gone too far. What do you think? Maybe? Yeah, probably so. Jack was an alcoholic. And, and Jack said, you know, I was just blind. I was just going my merry way, doing things unimaginable until my little girl looked at me and said, Daddy, why are you an alcoholic? And he said, Preacher, when I looked into her eyes and thought about that statement, it broke me. And we'll go into more detail as we share his testimony. He's baptized next Sunday. He said, he broke me, and I went straight to rehab, and I never have looked back. It's been a journey to Jesus, which ended here at Gospel Light, and will we'll, we'll continue next Sunday. Amen? Amen? But somebody, yes. Amen, Jack. Somebody could have very easily looked at Jack and said, there goes a loser. Look at that guy. He needs to get a grip. He's probably gone too far. We must avoid that temptation. We must not embrace that. Hey, listen, as long as they're alive, there is hope in Jesus. I shared a story about James West last week in the midnight cry and how the hope that James was able to give through a multitude of different ways and stories. And it was an amazing thing that he had all those people come to Christ while he was here for four years because what James saw with his eyes in downtown Hot Springs, he did something about every week. It was amazing. And there's so many more stories that I could share, but I want to share with you one as I transition to point number two and three and close the message. Just one more. I'm going to use this just like I have the missions quotes and the pictures. This is my transition story. John Johnson, I don't know if John's here today. John, yeah, there's John. John's a man, he's a great friend. He's been in our church for, I mean, listen, a long time. He's been so faithful. He's served in so many capacities. Still serving in our church today and works for a businessman in our church and is just solid, rock-solid Christian and a rock-solid friend. John was a part of our bus ministry. He was a bus driver or captain or both? Both? Yeah. So John knew what it was like to knock on doors and visit people. And there was this apartment complex. Does any, has anybody ever eaten at the best cafe? Anybody? Is that, is that, am I saying it right? The best? That's a foo-foo breakfast place, right? We're like an eggs, $10. I get it. And uh, yeah, so, no, it's good. It is good. I've, everybody I've talked to, sorry, don't tell best cafe I said that. Anyway, so the best cafe, though, used to be that. I think they put millions of dollars in it. It used to be a really trashy place. To be honest, that's kind of where you went. You just went to those areas because that's where hurting people were, right? And there was 52, as I recall, somewhere around 52. I'm going to use the number 52 just because, for example, it could have been 42. But, and it was a horseshoe. So one, and then two, three, four, five, six, 10, 20, 30, 40, 52. I mean, just, and John started knocking on doors. He knocked on door number one, and when he did, uh, nobody answered. Door number two, door number three. But in door number 52, while John was knocking on all the other doors, there was a man named Mark. John didn't know Mark lived there, but Mark had been there just a few days because he had left the East Coast after his family was destroyed because of his alcoholism. 
He cashed in all that he had and had $30,000. He put $30,000 in a briefcase, cash, put a loaded pistol underneath that cash and said, when I spend my last dollar, I'll take my life. He arrived in Hot Springs a few days before this event. And he had spent his last dollar. And inside that briefcase that had $30,000 to start the trip, had no money, and now it's time to finish his life. He steps outside the door, and he looks up into the heavens and says, God, if you really are there, and if you really are God, then do something. I'll give you an hour. Do something. I mean, send a lightning bolt, send a guy by, just whatever you need to do, God. He noticed a guy across the way, he said, as he gave his testimony in church. He noticed a guy across the way, but he, he thought it's probably a Jehovah's Witness, you know. Whatever. He won't make it to my door. But whatever happens, if that dude makes it to my door, I'll do whatever he says if I'm lucky enough. He said he went and sat back down and just waited for God to do something as he contemplated where he would put the bullet. But sure enough, within that hour, John Johnson knocked on door number 52. And when John, when John knocked and the man answered, the man looked at him and said, Sir, what's your name? And he said, that's supposed to be the other way around, right? When somebody... He said, John. He goes, John, I'm so glad you're here. Come on in. What, what, do, what do you got? He says, well, I, I, I'm from church. He goes, oh, great, great. I, I, you have no idea. I, 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 you just sit there, and whatever you have to say, I, I'm in. I'm in. Just tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. And John sort of thought, well, this is kind of right picking here. I mean, no, I'd have to work too hard for this one. So John gives him the gospel. Mark bows his head. Trust Christ as a Savior. He gets baptized the next Sunday. Stayed in church for about three years before he went back to the East Coast. I'm going to tell you, there's a Mark right now in Hot Springs who feels completely neglected and completely broken and is just waiting for somebody in God's great providence to come by and offer the gift of salvation. He saw their neglect. But number two, in the text, see it with me. He saw their number. Notice it says in, in, Mark, in Matthew 9, 36, that when he saw the crowds, he saw the crowds. I mean, a multitude of people were there. And you know, numbers can be overwhelming. You ever been there? Champions volleyball team has been there. Yeah, right girls, right Chloe? The team has eight players, two of them are injured, and most teams they play have 30 players. <laughs> Every time I watch him play, I'm like, Sheesh. it's got to be tough to look at that long crowd of players and, and know you've just got a small little group. They do really well for just having a few, but it's tough. Numbers can be overwhelming. When I was in seminary, I was in Chicago, and I shouldn't have been by myself, but I was by myself. And I'm going to tell you, when you're walking down the streets of Chicago, and this is what happened, I got surrounded by 10 gang members, and they mugged me. And they beat me half to death and left me for dead and took my wallet. It's a long story that I'm going to make really short and not tell you everything. But I'll just tell you this. I did survive, obviously. But I will tell you, when you're surrounded by 10 people and you walk away with your life, it's overwhelming. The odds of that are almost impossible. It's hard to, it's hard to defend yourself against one or two, much less 10. Sometimes numbers can be overwhelming. 
And Jesus, when he saw the crowds, it's almost as if he's trying to get you and I to understand this. And, and we feel the, the urgency and the pain in his heart, his eyes, as he saw the people who were hurting, but there weren't enough people to help them. So pray that the Lord of the harvest would send more laborers. We got loads of people hurting. We got very few people to help them. The, the numbers are overwhelming. There's so many people hurting. And there's so few people willing to help. And that moved Jesus. That moved him. That moved him. That moves me. I'll be honest. As I, as I conclude this sermon, I want you to not miss this thought. When you see people, so many people, that are hurting so much, it, it's, it's difficult not to want to try to do something to make a difference. Thinking about just our little city of Hot Springs. There's 38,000 people in our city. It doesn't seem like a lot of people. It's just 38,000. I mean, you know, you, I, I, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana, so I honestly thought I'd be in a big city. That would have been my heart. I mean, I love big cities. I was uh, born in New Orleans. I went to school near Chicago. I was a youth pastor in LA. What am I doing here, right? But that's where God has me. Never left. Just, I've just planted my roots here. I mean, my heart would have been much. Personally, I would have much rather been where the multitudes were. I've always loved the big city, the action. That's why I live downtown. I I could imagine living on 10 acres. It doesn't appeal to me at all. What do you do with 10 acres? Look at grass? I want to look out my door and see speeding cars and lights and noise and shotguns. Yes! That's what I'm used to. Best I can do is 3rd Street. Here, siren every day. 38,000 people. Still a lot of people. We started off in a building that could seat 80, and we filled it up. We then built a building that could seat 300, and we filled it up. And here we are in a building that could seat seven, 800 people. And God's blessed us, and we've got two services, and there's still more to do. And, and yet I see that there are so many more people than are even coming to our church and to every church in this city combined. And there's still more crime in this city. There's more drugs in this city. There's more alcohol in this city. There is so much to do and so many people to reach. You feel like you've made an impact, and then you're like, but there's so much more to do. When he saw the crowds, he was moved. Think about Garland County. It's 99,000. I mean, that's a lot of people. It's 100,000 people. But then there's Arkansas. There's 3 million people. We sort of live in a bubble in Arkansas. You know, I mean, it's kind of weird. It's, uh, we may not be living in a bubble much longer. If issue 4 gets passed, I think we'll, we'll, we'll quickly begin to feel even the pains of, 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 of more and more of drugs and, and some of the things that can be affected by, by, by children and legalized marijuana, God forbid that would happen. And, and I urge you to vote in, in a way that would honor Scripture and the Word of God and, and with compassion for the, for the crowds in your vote. But I will tell you that we live in a bubble. You get outside of Arkansas, I mean, we're about to elect a governor that's pro-life. Aren't we blessed, right? Amen? We're probably going to elect a governor that is very conservative, goes to church, loves the Lord. I mean, but then there's America. There's 329 million people. And then there's the world. There's 7.7 billion people. Do you get the picture? 
Sometimes I think we just look in our little street, our little world, and yet there's so many more out there than we could ever imagine. And when I got off a plane in 2000 after preaching at an Air Force base in Tokyo, Japan, and I preached a revival there, when I landed, I found out that George Bush had won the presidency because we were gone. The mission strip covered the election period, and I did the early voting thing. And when I, I didn't know who won. I got back, front page, got back on election day. said, George Bush is, is our new president. And then it had on the front of USA Today a picture of, of America. And you've seen these, right? You've seen these where, like, you know, there's the red and there's the blue. And the red kind of represents maybe more of a, a conservative vote and base. And the blue might represent a little different view. And, and, and so as I looked at America, they said the red represents where Bush easily won. And the blue represents where the other, the opponent easily won. And, 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 and the whole red look, the whole map looked red. I thought, ha. Huh. You know, is there any blue? But when, when you looked closer, you found the blue was in all the big cities where all the massive population was. And the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. I'm just as clear as I'm speaking to you right now. I know he speaks to us all differently. There's different messages, different visions, different dreams that we have. But I know he spoke to me about starting 500 churches in the 50 largest cities. And I was so excited about that. And so I hung this banner in the hallway. And I began to say, we're going to capture America with champion graduates. And we started to plant some churches in different cities. And, and we were seeing this dream become a reality. And then some things happened. And Transitions happened in our ministry, and I had to kind of put every dream I ever had aside for a while and just kind of survive, and, and we did. But I want you to know, even if this doesn't happen in my lifetime, I pray that God would allow somebody to see the multitudes and be moved in such a way that you would take up the mantle of church planning in large cities, and that Champion Christian College would always be a place that's sending out preachers and missionaries to impact this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when you see the multitudes, when you see the crowds, you can't help but to want to do something about it. But it's overwhelming. It has been and it always will be. And the temptation to avoid is this. We must not yield to the temptation that because there are so many people who are hoarding so badly, there's no reason for me to try because it won't make any difference. I mean, okay, preacher, okay, Jack, congratulations, there he is, you got one. Yeah, but Jack's got a daughter, and Jack's got some people he works with, and Jack's got a sphere of influence that I don't have. So if I'm able to influence Jack and love Jack and disciple Jack, you reckon maybe he could reach his daughter and maybe reach somebody he works with? Are you hearing, are you with me? Listen, I'm going to tell everyone here today, All of us have a sphere of influence and opportunity, and and we're called to a people group in this world to reach them, to disciple them, to love them. We just must see them as Jesus saw them. Someone saw me. Someone saw a little Roman Catholic altar boy, 13 years of age, in a little Baptist church, and they saw me, and and they sat with me, And, and then I was led to Christ. And then my youth pastor invited me to his home, and I could take you to the house on Meadowbrook, six blocks from the church. I could take you to the house that I slept in a minimum of 100 nights a year. When you're raised in a single-parent home and your mom works third shift and you can't get to school the next morning without a ride, you have to sleep over people's houses all the time. But I just had one house. Lance Laird was his name. His home was a mess, too. His mom and dad 
split up and went their different ways. And so Lance went to live with his grandparents. But his grandparents, oh my. Carl and I think Carl Smith, who was the, Tony Marsh, you remember the, the, the woman's name, the grandma? I can't remember. It was Carl, I think it was Carl and Susan Smith. I can't remember. But that couple, Carl and his wife, every time Lance said, can I bring Eric over to sleep? They would say yes. And they made the best strawberry punch you've ever tasted in your life. Every time I'd walk in their house, I'd say, Miss Smith, can I have some strawberry punch? She'd get out that fresh strawberry punch, pour me a glass and push it across that counter. And I'd drink that strawberry punch and think, I just felt so loved. And they began to nurture me. Lance began to disciple me. And I, I, for six years of my life, I spent time. I was just one. They probably had no idea. I'd pastor a church this size or, 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 or do much of anything. for. They didn't know. They just knew that there was a responsibility. Here was a kid that needed some help. They didn't know. And oftentimes you don't know. We don't know the difference we're making when we pour into someone's life. God has a plan and God has others he's going to bring into their lives. And I'm here today as a product of somebody who saw something in one person. One person. And I'm asking everyone here today to feel, in a sense, the urgency of the text. To see the crowds and be moved to do something about it. What if one person helped one person this year? You know, it's interesting to look at a crowd this size. And not including the first service. So just to give you an example, Noah... Join me on the platform for 30 seconds. I want, I want to show you something, Noah. Noah, how old are you? When I was 16, I'm going to tell a story at the end of the message about when I was 16. Don't, don't, you need to listen. All right, I'm listening. All right. So here's Noah. Noah, pretty good crowd. Yes. I would say, do you think there's at least 100 in here? At oh, yeah. least. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. So we got at least 100 people sitting in this building, not including the first service, not including the balcony. There's quite a few up there. Oh, yeah. List 100. Okay, so you can verify that for me? Yeah. Thanks. You can be seated. That was easy. Yeah. What if 100 people, what if we all helped one person? Just one. I mean, just one. Just, just find a Jack. It wasn't really that hard to find Jack. He showed up here. He just showed up. I shook his hand. I said, hey, here's my number. Did you give your cell phone number? Why not? It's a cell phone number. Who cares? Everybody's got my cell phone number. I mean, I'll give you my cell phone number. Give it to Jack. Jack called me. Can't believe it. He actually called. Hey, preacher, let's talk. He talked. We talked again. We talked again. He kept coming. He's getting baptized. I mean, it's not that hard. Just, just put yourself out there. You'd be shocked at what people will do when you put yourself out there. You say, well, I'm, not, I'm that kind of person. Take your time. Take your time. Take, take a year. Talk, talk to somebody who is and ask, hey, what are some of the traits? I, I want to pray that God would give me more boldness. It's okay. We're all, we're all I get it. But what if 100 people helped 100 people? It'd be 200. And then what if those 200 helped 200? That's 404. Help four and eight and 1,600. Did you know in eight, nine years we could reach this whole city for Christ? You say, that's fluff, preacher. Come on. I mean, I've seen these graphs before. Okay, I get it. So maybe we don't. Maybe all we do is help 100 people. It's worth a try. I got to motivate you some way. I, mean, I'm help- I want you to see it could happen. Could it not? Could God do that? Has God done it before? Yes. Yes, he has. You see, if we were just determined to help one person, that's just a hundred of us. The rest of us can wait for another message. But if a hundred people could say, listen, I get it. I want to make a difference. Probably the greatest revival I've ever been a part of in my life was in L.A., California. 
My wife and I got married, stayed where we were for a year, and then we got a job offer at her home church in California, right? And it was like, it sounded really good. I mean, you know, it was full-time for me, full-time for her. It was in L.A. Hey, you know, L.A. sounds exciting, right? Not exciting at all. Traffic is enough to just, you know, make you want to croak, right? But we moved to L.A. They tell us they got 100 kids in the youth department. I go to the first youth activity. I get there 15 minutes early, 10 minutes later, 5 minutes early from the youth activity. A girl named Christine Brandt shows up. Hey, Christine. Or I didn't know her name. I said, hey, uh, my name's Eric Mason, wife Carol Ann. We're the new youth pastor and youth pastor's wife. What's your name? My name's Christine. Christine what? Christine Brandt. Hey, Christine. Thanks for coming. We're excited. I, I guess we're going to have a good crowd today. She goes, who told you that? I'm like, well, they said y'all had a big youth department. They said, well, we got a big Christian school, but I mean, for the last six months, I'm the only kid that's come to a youth. I'm, nobody else is coming. I'm like, nobody's coming? No, I'm, well, I'm coming, but no, nobody's coming. I looked at my wife and I said, they lied to us. <laughs> she said, well, you know, it's her home church. She tried to say, well, you know, maybe they just stretch the truth a little bit. I mean, honey, you know. I said, okay, well, we're here. We might as well try to make a difference. And again, to make a long story short, I got to see in the period of a year, literally God move in such a way where we saw one young man, one young woman after another come to Christ. Within nine months, we had 150 coming every Wednesday night to youth group. Every Wednesday night. We couldn't contain the crowds. Kids coming to our home at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning, getting rid of their alcohol and, 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 and their immorality, having sex with their boyfriends and girlfriends and determining to become clean. Not because we were putting any pressure, just we were just teaching the Bible and they were getting right with God. It was un- In fact, it was so overwhelming that the church began to complain and say, listen, you've got to slow down. There's too many kids coming. We don't have any room. We couldn't. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was incredible what God was doing. And I, even in my 30 years of gospel light, I don't think I've ever experienced in a nine-month period an overwhelming move of God like I did in California in that youth department at Faith Baptist Church in Canoga Park, California. But it started with one. One girl who said, I'm here. Let me introduce you to a friend. Because I, I told Christina, and then I, told you, I asked your mother-in-law, mother, my mother-in-law, I said, give me one kid that you, want me, that you think would be good for me to reach. They gave me a kid that was an atheist. <laughs> His name was Clint. Clint today is a youth pastor in North Carolina. He was on staff here for 10 years. Amazing stories. And they're not all, they're not all reached the finish line. But, but the but point of the story is this, to let you know that I'm speaking out of some experience in my 57 years of seeing God move. D.L. Moody was called to preach in a dream where he saw millions of people falling into hell on a conveyor belt. He woke up from his dream, D.L. Moody, and said, I must preach the gospel. He saw their neglect. He saw their number. Number three, he saw their need. He saw their need. Look at verse 38 as we close the message. Therefore, pray earnestly. Now, hey, don't read the rest of the verse. It's going to be tough because it's all on the screen. But can you just take, take a moment and focus on that word earnestly? What did they pray earnestly about or for? Well, I'll tell you what I would suggest. Let's pray for more money because I've had enough people tell me, preacher, all you need is a million dollars. You get yourself a million dollars and we, we can do it. And a lot of churches believe that. All we need is money. 
So pray earnestly for more money, right? More money, yeah. That's what we need. No, what about this? We need more, we need more, more crowds, bigger crowds, more people. Just get people in here, preacher. What's wrong with you, man? Preach nicer sermons. You, you think anybody's enjoying your church preaching like this, preacher? You're going to run people off. We got to preach what they want to hear. Let's just get more people. That's the solution. Pray earnestly for more people to come to church. Is that what it says? Pray earnestly for more programs. That's your problem, preacher. You had a bus ministry. You had a nursing home ministry. You had a daycare. Your problem is you got to start programs. You just, that's what it says. Pray earnestly for more programs, more programs, more programs. Just keep adding to the schedule at the church. That's where you went wrong, preacher. When you got off that path, that messed everything up. Is that what it says? It says, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest, or to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, here's my closing thoughts. And we're going to be singing about this as we leave the building today. Their need was not for a greater work. Their need was for a move of God. Don't miss this. This is is something we all need to attach our hearts to. A move of God between the laborer and the Lord of the harvest. You see, sometimes we've got a move of God between the laborer and the pastor. Man, old brother Eric, he gets me going. Man, I can't wait. You know, he's going to tell a good story. He's going to preach a good outline. He's going to keep me awake. Man, he's pretty entertaining. Whoo, I tell you what, man. I got to get me a dose of that sermon Sunday. I got to get me some Scott. I got to get me some, you know, Jeremy or Jordan or uh, just get me a little dose of that preacher. That's all I need. You know, I want to be under the spout where the glory comes out. You know, it was all about the preaching. All about the message. And all about the pressure. You talk about pressure. Let me tell you what pressure is. Pressure is when you feel as a preacher, you've got to have results. It's crazy. I live there, man. It's awful. It's awful. Nothing worse than feeling as if you failed because nobody came to the altar or nobody got saved or you didn't have enough people or you're down 10 from last week or when your buddy says, hey, how are you doing? And you've got to make up something to make sure it doesn't sound like you. I mean, it's so awful. But that's the mentality I grew up in. It's a move of God between the labor and the, and the man. I mean, it's all about, hey, what can I do? What can I produce? What can I make you do? What can I press you to do? What can I guilt you into doing? And so my job as a pastor for years, I thought, was to get you to do something. Was I ever wrong? I was so wrong. And I'm sorry. If you were here in those days, please forgive me. You obviously have, or you wouldn't be here. It wasn't fun. It was rough. Now, it's not about a move of God between you and me. It's a move of God between you and him. You see, some of the greatest advice I was given a couple of weeks ago as we were talking about this, Kevin Connor said, whatever you do, preacher, don't guilt people into doing anything. Don't have sign-up sheets to to serve, just put it out there. Last week, I talked about feeding the homeless at the Samaritan's house. I didn't get to my house where my phone beep, beep, beep. I had people beep. Hey, preacher, let me know when that happens. We're in. We want to be a part of that. We'll volunteer. I'm like, that's a move between the labor and God. 
I had no sign-up sheet. I didn't say, see me after the service. I didn't say, like, you know, the old-time sermon. Let me tell you something. Don, bless God, you backslidden preacher. What's wrong with you, son? Get right with God. Yeah, look at me. I'm talking to you. You ever been to church like that? Yeah. I've been under several sermons like that. Them old camp meetings where it was just, you know, you, you scared half to death your name's going to get called, you know. You just worried, worried, worried. If you've been in church long enough, you've probably experienced that. It's not about that. This is not like, what's up with preachers? He's ups- I'm not upset. I'm actually really happy right now. I'm excited. I'm more thrilled than ever before. I've got freedom. Hey, it's not up to me. It's up to the move of God between you and him. I'm released. All I've got to do is just give the message. Just preach the truth. Just give the text. Just talk about what Jesus did and what he saw and what he accomplished. Just say, hey, guys, you want in? Hey, Pray. Pray, but don't be surprised if when you pray for somebody else to do it, you're really praying for yourself. Don't be surprised when you say, oh, God, preacher's right. We need more laborers. You heard what he said. He's on it, God. And your Bible says to pray for labor. So, God, we need more people. And then don't be surprised if you're not praying too loud that you're going to hear, psst, hey, I need you. Oh, uh, not China, right? No, not China. Like, your street. You mean I don't have to go to Zimbabwe? No. You're good. No Zimbabwe. I got, I got folks to do Zimbabwe. I, I need you to go to work this week. And just be kind. Let them see Jesus in you. That's it. How's that sound? Really? Yeah, just do that. But do it intentionally. Do it. In, hey, I need, I need you to give out some of these little, you know these little cards that, that they printed up at the church? Sorry. <laughs> Here they are. You know these little, hey, actually, you know why they talked about that? So you could get five and give them out this week. In fact, I've got somebody that's going to get one and actually get saved. I just need you to be the, the laborer. That's all. That's all. You see, church, when we, here's the temptation we need to avoid. We must not yield to the temptation to live our lives to play instead of pray. You know what I'm afraid of? I'm honestly afraid of this, and here's why. I mean this sincerely. This is a little bit like, it's, it's hard for me to say it because I don't, my heart is so desirous that you would not feel at all attacked. But if the Holy Spirit is, is placing conviction in anybody's life, may it be him and not me. I feel as if we have a generation of players and not prayers. I feel as if we have a generation of gamers, players, sports. Our dream is, you know, watching our kid play sports for four, five, six, seven, eight hours a, a week. And, and I'm all for sports. And I went to the game last night, and I, and I love it. But we play, and, and, we, and, and we have fun. And this life, it just ends up being a party while the world dies and goes to hell. The news that we've received, we, we just seem like it's just for us, like, it's, it's just for us. It's for me. I got it. I got it. I'm saved. But what about the rest of them? What about the folks out there? Do you see them? Or, or do, you, do you understand? You're, you're the vessel. You're the laborer. I'm the laborer. And God, God's calling us today to respond. And I just feel like we're good at playing. And the devil knows it. So he puts this emphasis on free time and playing and and games, and fun, and going out, and having a good time, and you need you time, you need you time, and you need, you know, and and I get it, I get it, 
People ask me all the time, how do you do it all? I'm like, well, I don't. It's easy to do more for God when you don't play a lot. I have fun, but I have fun serving God. I've just learned you can have fun serving God. So I don't fill my life up with a lot of play because I look at it like this. If I'm serving God with my life and preaching the gospel and teaching the gospel and sharing the gospel with my family, with my kids, with my grandkids, with you, with us, with Jack, with others, I only, you only get one shot at life. I'm 57. I'm going to kick the bucket in the next 20, 30 years, I'm sure. If I can stretch it out past 82, my dad's 82. What's that, 67, 77? That's 25 more years. We're on borrowed time after 80, right? So if I can, if I, can I got 25 more years. I don't want to play much more. You say, well, what about retirement? You, you guys need to take off. And, well, listen, we'll, we'll take a trip a couple times a year. Maybe we'll figure it out, honey. Maybe a 50-year anniversary or something, you know. We'll have a good time. We take vacations every year, but I, I don't want a three-month sabbatical. I'm sorry. I, don't, I can't imagine. Just, I want so desperately for God to use me. And I want, I want to reach people. I want you to understand the calling that God has placed on our lives. And I'm believing there's a 16-year-old kid here like Noah, where when he's somewhere doing the deal he loves, and you're doing what you love like I was doing what I love, which was basketball. I love basketball. Man, I tell you, Jim, you'd have loved hanging out with me. That's all I could do, play. I mean, I I, I knew I couldn't play in the NBA, but I wanted to be an NBA basketball coach. My idol was Pat Riley. He's the general manager of of the Heat. He was the coach of the Lakers and coach of the Heat. He was just an iconic coach, and I wanted to be him. But at age 16, God got a hold of me as I was playing basketball and dreaming about what I wanted to do with my life. And I, and I, I took that basketball and I rolled it to the side. And to make a long story short, I got on my face and I, I prayed longer than I had prayed in my entire life. I don't want to say how long it was. I know it was several hours. I just prayed, God, I, I, I want to give my life to you. And honestly, no, I've never been the same since. I mean, the Erica Pacey you see at 57 is the same guy at 16. I've just, I can't imagine doing anything but just being a laborer in the fields. That's all I know. If I was a plumber, I think I'd be the same way. If I was an electrician, I, I really believe. If I did make it to the NBA, I'm not sure you can do it from the NBA sidelines, but I try. I give it a shot. I say, give me the mic at halftime. Let me tell these people about Jesus. I'll coach, but I'm, I, I'm, you've got to give me some freedom to preach the gospel because that's what God's called me to do. Guess what? Next Sunday, it'll be different. I won't be as animated. I won't have as many stories. I won't break a sweat. I probably won't move a whole lot. But this Sunday, how do you preach compassion without passion? And so as we think about the move of God in our lives today, would you pray with me that God would move on your heart to take the fields serious? Our fields are hot springs, our city streets, Central Avenue, Grand Avenue, Malvern Avenue, Albert Pike, Airport Road, and everything in between. It's where we are. It's where God's put us. Let's do something this week to prepare ourselves for the harvest. It's calling. They need Jesus. And God's calling us to be that mouthpiece.
Let's pray, shall we? Father, Lord, I just pray that, God, you would use our time together this month. It's been five weeks of missions, five weeks of missions. Scott Mercer's messages and David Allen's messages and these last two messages. God, it's been an incredible emphasis. And God, I'm so burdened about not walking away from this month without making sure that we have truly, Lord, preached exactly what and how you would want us to and how you'd want us to and what we'd need to share that the people of God here at Gospelite, Lord, would be placed in a position where they have to make a decision, a decision about being a laborer, a decision about a move of God. Lord, not between the pastors and the people, but between God and all of us. Father, I pray that you'd move on this crowd in such a way that we would never be the same. Lord, just whatever that looks like for all of us, God. For some, it may be more dramatic than others, but Lord, whatever it looks like, may we not be the same as when we came into this month of October, as we leave it, as we walk away from October 2022 and never to return again, never to return again. May we be different. May we be changed. May we be moved. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand, shall we?